Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that your spirit will be with us today. We need, we very much need your help today uh, to guide our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start with just a quick review of what I said to you last Sabbath, because I don't always do sermons that have like specific recommendations and so forth, and, and today I'm actually, it's, today is really going to be a sermon that leaves you wrestling with your own thoughts more than anything, but I did want to review what I told you last Sabbath because I think it's plausibly useful today as well, but we were talking about temptations and, and ways to confront and resist temptation, and I told you that one of the first keys is to know who you are. If you know who you are, just child of God, you know, we talked about that when, when you're baptized, you go down into the water, Jesus came up out of the water, heaven was open, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus carried those words with him into the wilderness, and I believe those words helped him as the devil challenged him on the level of his identity. And I believe that the devil challenges us on that level of our identity as well. And when we're fearful and uncertain of our identity, it's easier for us to fall into sin. So, so know who you are, son, daughter of God. That matters. Your identity matters. The second one was know your commitments. What have you committed to? Are you married? That's a commitment. It comes with implications. Follow the implications. Are you uh, employed? That comes with implications. To the degree it does not violate God's law, follow the implications or harm your health or whatever the case may be. But all of these commitments we take on in life. Do you have children? It comes with commitments. Embrace those commitments. When you know what they are and you, and you live according to them, that will help you in the hours of temptation. Understand your limitations. None of us are good at everything. None of us are strong in every situation. That's why you can't make the final list of things you should never allow yourself to be tempted by because it's a different list for everyone. There are things that would defeat me that you might not have a problem with. There are things that would overwhelm you that wouldn't even catch my attention. So let's, let's be wise enough to know, yeah, that might be all right for you, but I need to not do that. And that's okay. The fourth one was don't let yourself be goaded. The devil loves to do this. If you're this, then you should be able to, or in order to demonstrate to everybody else, why don't you show that and when we get into that show-off mode, that pride mode, it leads us to trouble. And then finally, stay true to your purpose. What have you determined to be, to do? Stay true to it. Don't let little things come along. Remember that uh, in order to have what you want most, you may have to deny yourself what you want now. So keep it in mind. Keep it all in mind. All right, so that's a little review, and maybe this can be useful today to apply, but today I want to do something a little different than we did last week. I want to compare some texts. 
And then I want to leave you to wrestle with some questions. I gave you specific advice last week. This week you're going to have to do the work. All right? We're going to start in Matthew chapter 8. And you heard a little passage from Matthew chapter 8 that sets the stage for where we're going to go here. But Matthew chapter 8. So I encourage you, we're going to be in several different texts. I encourage you to take one of those Bibles in front of you. Open it up. Uh, I have the same translation here. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. And we read this story. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Jesus said to the centurion, I will come and heal him. Because this was the standard way. People came to Jesus and said, I have this problem. Jesus said, okay, I will come with you and take care of it. So Jesus answered the same way. I will come and heal him. Verse 8, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Note that word. He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, there's a number of notable things in this story, and I just want to point out a couple of them. First of all, the fact that Jesus was willing to go to the home of the centurion, the Gentile. That was not a thing you did. But Jesus expresses, when the centurion comes to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion says, no, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house and that whole thing. We remember down the road, we'll get the story of Peter. He is summoned by a centurion and he goes into his home and even makes the comment when he goes in, you know I'm not supposed to be here. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Jesus signals his willingness to go to the centurion's home. But now another thing about this Gentile, this centurion. He says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come to my home. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Then verse 9, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go when he goes. Another one, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. This man, this centurion that Jesus is interacting with has a very Roman view of the world. Do you see that? It's incredibly hierarchical in his mind. Everything exists in authority and hierarchy structure. And he says, no, I get it with you. You are authority. And I understand authority. Because my whole system, my whole government is based on authority. I have bosses. I'm a boss. 
Now, what's interesting to me in this is that whether that is the right worldview or not is actually not that important to Jesus at this point, is it? Because I think to some degree, we'd be a little uncomfortable with the notion that heaven is a Roman hierarchy, right? So I don't think the thing we should take from this text is to assume that heaven operates like the Roman government even though the centurion is using that model to express his understanding of the role of Jesus. But in that moment, that doesn't seem to be all that important. In fact, what seems to be important here is in this probably what we would call somewhat skewed worldview, the one of hierarchy and control, as opposed to the kingdom of God, which is centered in love, the kingdom of God which, in which there is no Jew or Greek, no male, female, no, you know, where it is egal, more egalitarian amongst the believers. Yet Jesus is honoring the understanding of this Roman centurion who gets orders, who gives orders, and who has, well, we'll say it politely, he has servants. Yet he also has something else. He has a keen understanding at a deep level of the power of Jesus. And his response causes Jesus to marvel, to be amazed, to be surprised. Nowhere in Israel have I found faith like this Yet this faith is coming from a man with, without the right context. But still he's believing in Jesus. So the irony and the context of what we're going to wrestle with today. This man's an outsider. Yet he has this faith. Are we sometimes too close in proximity to Jesus to actually understand him. Are we too close? Have we been around this too much that we've completely lost the sense of it? That maybe an outsider would understand the reality of the power of God better than we who supposedly come and worship him every week? Maybe every day? Second text I want to compare. Mark chapter 6. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Compare this story to the one we just read. Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown. This is Jesus again. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him 
And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And now notice this last line. And he marveled because of their disbelief. What happened with the centurion, the guy from another world, the guy from another reality? Jesus marveled at his faith. What happened in his hometown? He marveled at their lack of faith. The people that knew him best. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? These are the only two times I know of in the whole of the Gospels where Jesus is amazed or surprised. He's amazed at the faith of the centurion, and he's amazed at the lack of faith of the people he grew up with. Quite a contrast, isn't it? So let's go back to the question. When is familiarity the context for low expectations? Luke chapter 8. Let's drag Luke into this. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Okay, right there, we've already got an interesting contrast, don't we? With the centurion, the centurion comes and says, I have a servant, he's suffering badly. Jesus says, I'll come to your house. He says, I don't need that, just, tell, just say the word, he'll be fine. But Jairus, Jairus is of the other group. He's like, please come to my house and make her well. He needs Jesus to come to the house. He's not in the authority model. He's in another model. I don't know exactly what model he's in, but he, he needs Jesus to come to his house. And this becomes problematic in the story, doesn't it? Because there's a crowd, and it takes Jesus too long to get there. And anyway, that's not the part of the story we're going to look at, but it is an interesting contrast. We'll go on. Verse, uh, end of verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So now imagine the scene. Jesus is trying to move through the crowd. He's trying to get to Jairus' house, but the crowd knew he was coming. And now they're all packed in. Have you ever been in a big crowd? It's kind of the introvert's nightmare, right? Caught in the middle of a big crowd. You're bumping into everybody constantly as you move along through the crowd. So that's what's going on here. Verse 43, and there was a woman who had, had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you, and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now pause there for a second. 
Did Jesus miraculously move through this crowd without touching anyone except the woman? No. No, he's in the middle of the crowd. Maybe the disciples are playing crowd control. You know, they're around him. Here's Peter. He's by Jesus. He's bumping into him constantly. There's lots of people physically touching Jesus, but only one woman is healed. What's going on here? You know, sometimes we get caught in the, in the, the touching Jesus' magic kind of concept. But it's, it's really not like that. You, you see that sometimes, this notion that, that maybe something was magic there. But it, it wasn't about that. It was about the touch of faith, not the bump of ignorance. It was about faith and belief, not proximity. There were lots of people close to Jesus. There were lots of people bumping into Jesus, but only one hand reached out in faith. Verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So what about this? How many of us live our lives in close proximity to Jesus, bumping into him continually, yet without expectation? We participate as, as believers, but without expectation. All right, well, let's, let's turn this around. Is it even possible to live at the point of constant expectation? Is that not, in fact, in a lot of ways, a, a recipe for misery? And what about all those times when we sought Jesus for a particular outcome, but it just didn't happen? All those times we reached out with faith, but it just didn't happen the way we thought it should happen. Luke chapter 4. Stay in Luke. Luke chapter 4. Verse 23. Again, Jesus is in Nazareth. Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Remember you get to the end and Jesus is, is on the cross. And they say to him, if you're the son of God, come down from there. You healed others. What are you doing? Why are you dying? 
Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They're like, come on, man. You go down to Capernaum and you're a big star. You come here and what? Nothing. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through their midst, but passing through their midst, he went away. So I'm hoping this will not be my fate today, that you will carry me to the top of Sanitas and throw me off. But what if there were hungry people in our church, but it was a homeless bum down there that got fed? What if there were sick people in our church but somebody else got healed. What do we do with this? I can understand why they were a little upset. There's a few people in our church I'd like to see healed. How do we keep vibrant faith alive in the midst of heartbreak and disappointment? Remember this. Sometimes we see someone who's jaded. And we think, oh, they shouldn't be that way. They should have a better attitude. Well, I want you to remember something. People do not normally become jaded without cause. You don't normally develop a bad attitude without something causing it. You don't normally slip into confusion without a confusing reality. Is it possible for us to have belief without expectation? And, and would that even be good if we achieved it? There's an interesting passage that Paul writes, 2 Timothy. The letter to Timothy, second letter to Timothy. And he writes these words, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says... But understand this, 
that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. Can you believe it? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I'm just going to pause right there. Uh, he was definitely free-form writing just about every terrible thing he could come up with. But at the same time, uh, we can kind of see that reality. It's, it's out there, isn't it? But then verse 5, he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he says, avoid such people. Now, now a tendency in reading this is to think that somehow verse 5 is, is like kind of trying to wrap the whole thing up. But I don't think that's exactly what he's saying here. What I want to suggest rather is that he's including another kind of person in the list. Each one of these things is describing a kind of person. And I think he's describing another kind of person who's like these others. Now, we look at all these others and we're like, wow, what terrible people. What horrible people. They're ungrateful. They're unholy. They're heartless. They're unappeasable. What terrible people. But I want to suggest to you that there's another kind of person that's a problem. And that person is this one. The one having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Let me say it another way. Jaded believers who maybe show up to church every week, but have no expectation that God's going to do anything when they're there. People who go through the forms of faith without expecting transformation. And that in the last days, there would be people like that. Well, it's, it's fun to look at the other part of the list and, and look at society and say, oh, there you are, you're terrible. There you are, you're terrible. There you are, you're terrible. It must be the last days. But what if one of the other signs of the last days was churches full of people who had an appearance of godliness but were expecting God to do nothing? No expectation. Just going through the forms. Paul says avoid such people. Okay, so let's ask a different question. Let's say this is a possibility. How do we keep from being those people? Right? Because I don't want to be those people. I don't want to be the kind who live a form of godliness but deny the power. First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter one. There's an interesting, interesting little verse here that Paul writes. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 17. Paul writes, "For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel." Now don't, don't get too confused on that notion. He's not saying, 
baptizing is not important and that that's not a part of what's going on here. But he's actually addressing a controversy that's arisen because some people are saying, well, I was baptized by Paul, I was baptized by Apollos, I was baptized by Cephas, and everybody is, has their label as to who, who baptized me. He's addressing that. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. But now notice this next part. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, I've always found this to be a very interesting verse. Because if you go to the book of Acts and you read the story of Paul and how he ends up in Corinth, you will find that shortly before Paul goes to Corinth, he's in Athens. He was with the others. He gets sent down to Athens. He goes to Athens. He walks around the city of philosophers, the city of, of believers in just about everything, and he finds an altar to the unknown God, and you know there's that whole exchange that takes place. He goes with the philosophers onto Mars Hill, and he gives, he gives his presentation, his rational argument for the existence of the unknown God. And what's interesting is a few believe. A few believe. But not a lot. And it's not too long after that that Paul leaves there and goes to Corinth. Now, one of the things I've noticed about my Bible is that I don't have an epistle to the Athenians. But I've got two to the Corinthians. And one of the things as I reflect is that the church never really got that strong in Athens like it did in Philippi or like it did in Corinth which was the most unlikely place for the church to do well because I mean Corinth was detestable to everybody yet in this place God appears to Paul and says I have many people here now I have wondered did Paul repent of the process that he attempted in Athens? I don't know. I don't want to cast disdain on that because it really is a, a remarkable discourse that he gives on Mars Hill. But it doesn't seem all that effective. And he says, going away from there, writing about when he came to Corinth, it's almost like he had a change of mind as to how to go about this. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He also says, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. All right. So let me say this. I think it is right and good and healthy for us to study and to learn and to seek to draw conclusions from our studying and learning. In fact, that's my life. That's what I live to do. I love those things. And I think it's not wrong to have expectations. But here's the caveat. 
We must never allow our faith to fully rest upon our conclusions or upon our expectations. For when it does, the unsearchable reality about the ways and the purposes of God will destroy us when things don't make sense anymore. If we've based our faith on our conclusions or on our expectations, then our faith will be destroyed when God either doesn't align with our conclusion or does not agree with our expectation. So we can't put it there. We can have expectations, and we should study and draw conclusions, but that can't be the foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul going on with this thought. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If all I've done in anything I've ever said is convince you about something about God, I've done you a disservice. Because at its core, Christianity is not about being convinced, it's about being convicted. It's about a supernatural act that takes place in the heart of any willing individual who decides to put faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to Jesus, when Peter says to the question, who do you think I am? When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And what I take from that is this. The act of believing is a supernatural act that is initiated by the Father and received in any heart that is receptive through the Holy Spirit. Yes, we can talk conclusions. Yes, we can make the plausible case for the existence of Jesus. Yes, we can create all of that. But at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about a decision centered in the moving of the Holy Spirit in your heart to believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the foundation. And it must be unshakable. But how do we let our faith rest in the power of God when the manifestations of the power of God are so often not what we expect, either in theme or in manner? Can we trust ourselves to be able to sense the working of the Lord even when we don't understand. 
I hate disappointment. I hate experiencing disappointment, and I hate seeing disappointment in other people. This was always a weakness in my parenting. It was very hard for me to take something away when it caused disappointment. I didn't like to do that. I always kept trying to find a way to be able to give it back. I think my kids knew that. I hate disappointment. So you know what that does? It makes me cautious. Because I don't want to be disappointed. I don't get my hopes up. I try to keep it simple. Try not to, to look for some grandiose thing because if, if I invest everything in that and it doesn't come out, I'll be disappointed. I don't like to be disappointed. Because too much disappointment makes me jaded. But here's the thing. These are not things that move me forward in my walk with Jesus. Cautiousness does not move me forward in my walk with Jesus. Fear of disappointment does not move me forward in my walk with Jesus. There's no way to play it safe. There was a, a thing that I noticed in myself after our first child, Gable, was born. So Gable was born and... and uh, you know, as soon as that child comes into your home, you're like, wow, life at another level. I have a whole new set of concerns that I didn't even know existed. And, and I noticed this thing in myself that every year when his birthday came around, I was expecting some sort of release that never happened. The first one came by. The second birthday came by. By then, Nathan was here. His third birthday came, and it was about the time it got to his fourth birthday that I finally figured out what was going on in me. That somewhere in me, there was a voice saying, if I can just get him to X age, he'll be fine. He'll be safe. He'll be good. But I finally realized there's no age when our kids are finally safe. There's no age when I no longer worry. There's no age when it's all good now. Until the age to come. And I finally just had to say, oh, he doesn't ever turn that age, does he? I've got to find another way to cope. There's a contrast between the cautious love of man and the reckless love of God. We get jaded. We get hurt. We suffer. It doesn't make sense. We live in close proximity to Jesus, but we don't get healed. Yet some outsider, 
How does that work? Many will come from the east and the west and take their seat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, the sons and daughters of the kingdom will be on the outside. They've been hanging around the whole time. But somehow, proximity didn't lead to faith. I invite the band to come back up. And while they're coming, I want to read you a couple other verses, this time in Job. Job chapter 13. Job chapter 13, verse 13. Let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I want to suggest to you that's anything but cautious. I want to suggest to you that this is reckless love back towards God. I believe in you, but I don't understand... And you can take me out if you want. But I'm still going to argue. You brave enough to live like that? How do we even get to that point? That would be a miracle, I think. Another one, Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives... And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. What are we expecting? Do not let the breakdown, the the lack of times where it doesn't work out the way you thought it should, separate you from the ultimate promise. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's a statement of faith. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. What are we expecting? Do we have faith? We're going to sing a song called Same God. We actually sang this last week, and it's perfect that we're singing it again this week because I want you to get this in your head because this addresses this very issue that we're talking about, this, this reality. If we read this Bible story and then we look at our lives and it's like, what in the world? We can't base our faith on our conclusions and our expectations. We have to base them in the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who could have gotten down from the cross, but did not because of the ultimate purpose for which he lived. So in that context, I take you back to what I said last week. Know who you are. You're a son and daughter of God. It doesn't matter what you're going through. are witnessing to the tenacity of the believers 
Know your commitments. Don't throw them away. Understand your limitations. We can't fix everything. Don't let yourself be goaded. If you're a believer, you ought to stay true to your purpose. Live it to the end. Because He is the same God. In your flesh.